just not what I am Even though my zip code has changed I might smile and enjoy Where I'm currently employed Your soul can't be rearranged But it's hard to understand It's so hard to understand Farewell, fam Alright, hold on, hold on Quick, 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 quick Okay, it's episode 15 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and I'm also being joined by Ryan Topp and J.P. Breen. Today we'll discuss Corey Ray's Arizona Fall League performance, uh, some bit about the minor league system, and uh, I also have an interview with DRA co-creator Jonathan Judge. You can rate and review the podcast in iTunes. It helps people find the podcast, so just take a minute, leave five stars, and write something nice about us. Uh, we want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. Uh, we're featured on Disciples of Euchre, so check out disciplesofeuchre.com for great brewers content. And that's Ryan in the background stumbling with his beer, uh, making noise. So uh, hopefully he quits doing that once we're in the heart of the podcast here but it's done um, now yeah so Milwaukee, didn't didn't he do that before we started he did and then he had to like top off our beers while we're sitting here he was very excited about the uh, growler he brought today well that's so good. It's good uh, to be excited yeah it is milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored in part by sound devices a premier manufacturer of audio production gear and they're located right here in wisconsin sound devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the MixPre-3 and MixPre-6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Um, okay, the Astros won the World Series, so the top question on everybody's mind right now is who is going to be the 2020 World Series champion? JP, who's your pick? Well, I mean... The reason it's a question for everybody, I suppose we can take a step back to recognize that <laughs> Sports Illustrated made the the well, and it wasn't. Hey, 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 hey! The joke was we're just going to leap into this like it's a legitimate thing that people can do is predict World Series champions three years out. I know, but I I'm just going to say something quick because you would be the worst stand-up comedian. Because you would explain the joke once you finished it, because wouldn't you? I, because I'm a historian? That's <laughs> obviously true. Um, okay, the and, background on this. I had a funny history <laughs> no. professor. You know, I thought Dennis Miller was bad. <laughs> but, like, he it's is. made me a little bit upset because uh, Sports Illustrated has been kind of touting this as if they actually predicted it three years ago when they did it as a joke. Well, and it was two and a half years ago because it was mid-season. But anyways... Okay, now now if we're talking about who's getting absolutely nitpicky here, yeah, um, no, I mean for my own, I I think the Yankees are probably going to be the one to win it in twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean that would be the where the smart money would go. Them or the Cubs or Dodgers. Um, Why? Just because, because they have a lot of money, or because they have the combination of very good young cores and piles and piles of money uh, jp i'm assuming you're picking the yankees because you like their farm system plus they have the money to go out and sign bryce harper or manny machado or whoever else they want once that free agent class hits next season yeah absolutely i mean it's a combination of the farm system the young core that they already have in the system the fact that they've got a ton of money and 
you also have to look at the AL East in general, and it's not like Toronto is on a big upswing. The Orioles have huge questions. The Red Sox will, should be solid, but the Rays are not necessarily a team that you look at to be a juggernaut in three years from now either. So I think the Yankees are going to be in a good position to make the playoffs, just kind of boilerplate over the next three seasons regardless. And I think that they're going to be able to get better and better as it goes. And if you were going to throw another team into that too, I, you could do a lot worse than the Astros or you, you already brought them up, the Red Sox. Like the Red Sox are an incredible collection of young talent and also piles of money. So Yeah, I get a little bit nervous about the Red Sox because Dave Dombrowski's there. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, but and, if he keeps a young talent long enough that it starts to make an impact on the field and then he starts dealing guys. So if he has a young core already there, I just don't yeah. trust Dombrowski to bring a young core up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's fair. But even in the farm system right now, I mean, Devers is already up. Mm-hmm. You've got Bogarts is already he up. He kept Ben Attendee and he kept uh, Bo- and he kept Devers, which right. really are probably the two guys you want to keep more than any others. Yeah, absolutely. But after that, who's in their farm system now that's going to come up and be able to supplement that? Yeah, it, it thins out because now they've been in the uh, they've won the division a couple years in a row. They've so they don't have high draft picks because they have they had that weird thing going for a while where they would alternate between being a really good team and then they'd like lose 90, 95. And so they were getting like top 10 draft picks. They had a couple top 10 draft picks randomly amidst like sandwiched around like a World Series win in 2013. They they were, you know, pulling really high picks. So, yeah, I mean, if if you wanted something that's a little bit more kind of off the cuff and not not necessarily an easy one but uh i mean the team that everybody's going to gravitate towards in the astros style is going to be the braves or it could be the white Sox too maybe that's a couple years further down the road yeah it could be the white Sox for sure because they should have money to spend i mean they're in the market to be able to do it so yeah i mean that's i think that that's fair i think that the braves have more talent that i like not that the White Sox don't. The White Sox have a lot of high talent. Um, the Braves system is just ridiculously deep. And they're at the point now that a lot of those young players are going to start cutting their teeth in 2018. Well, and Acuna is, uh, what, going to be the number one prospect in baseball coming he's, into yeah. the season? He's, he's close, yeah. close to that, yeah. I mean, no, guess, he was killing one. it in like AAA at 19 years old. Yeah, he's number one. I can't, I can't think of anybody. I mean, maybe Victor Robles, but I don't think they're on the same level. I, I can't people, think of anybody else. I mean, who's you're, be because you're that. knocking somebody like Labor Torres down because of the injury and not having seen him for a while. Well, and the fact that he, I mean, he had risk before that. Sure. And Acuna, it, all he's doing is just producing, producing. And I mean, when like you look at this, yeah. I mean, when you factor in ceiling, you'd have to imagine, imagine that Acuna is probably the highest ceiling. Yeah. Um, may, oh. I, Torres might be purely no. high. You don't think? No. We'll see. No, not not in terms of hit tool, power, and defensive ability. I, I don't think that the ceiling for Glaber Torres is higher. So you are you're not a Torres is likely to stick at shortstop person. You think he's gonna end up moving to third? I I think he could maybe handle shortstop, but I don't think he's gonna be a plus defensive shortstop. And I also think that he's got some hit tool issues. Okay. That's fair. Hey, so uh, we have some people with questions about Brewers prospects since we're, you know, talking about everybody else's prospects at this point. But Kevin Schmidt asks, has Corey Ray done anything in the Arizona Fall League to restore some faith in his playing abilities or perhaps more important, his trade value, which, again, I I wouldn't expect Corey Ray's trade value to, 
you know, ebb and flow as much as I think a lot of people following the Brewers farm system think it does. I mean, he's a, he had a little bit of an upswing this past week going back into the week before. Okay, well, right now, Corey Ray's hitting 218, 283, 327 in 15 games. That's 55 at-bats right. in the Arizona Fall. Tiny League. sample, and it's also... He was, he, that is an uptick from where he was at. He was, he was struggling pretty mightily right out of the game. Yeah, I was going through. I didn't even put uh, uh, Jacob Gatewood on here because his numbers were so bad. Yeah. Like, it, it, there were a lot of just zeros in, like... Three digits led by a zero. He was that. He's that bad right now in the AFL. I would like to. I. I think that if you're interested in this podcast, I would highly recommend checking out, if only for this episode. But I listen to it regularly anyway, and I enjoy it. But the um, the Fangraphs podcast with are, uh, are, are are they paying us for this advertisement or what's going on? I'm I'm just recommending it because they people will like it. They talked about Brewers prospects a lot in that episode. Eric, Eric Longenhagen and uh, Carson Sestouli talked about almost nothing but Brewers prospects for like an hour and like extended, extended talk of Ray and whatever. Anyway, everybody loves Corey Ray. Have you noticed this? Like people that follow that are, uh, you know, at the games and whatever, people love Corey Ray. I think a lot of it has to do with he has plus plus makeup and people just love him for that. So, so are you just completely forgetting about Keith Law now, or what's going on? Keith Law also loves Corey Ray. No, he did not love Corey Ray in the blurb that we spent like a half an hour talking about. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, where he, where even though he was playing really badly, he said like nice things about like the approach and all that, and like the rest of wow, it. Wow, you're sure picking out like the one thing well, to law, hang on Okay, to so there. so Law was... Well, hold on a second. Law no, had him number one in that draft class and has stuck... Which we've already gone We've already over. talked about We've already and, talked and, about and it. Okay. about how terrible that draft class was. Okay, sure. okay. Wow. so you watched a few of Ray's at-bats in the AFL, correct? Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments on that? I, you know, we, we generally were just going with other people's views, but... The, the ones that I saw, those were the ones earlier in the game on Saturday. Um, it looked like what Law was talking about. His first at bat, he worked the count a little bit and then grounded one up the middle. And because of his speed and because of the fact that it was pretty much right over second base, he was able to leg out an infield hit. And then once he was on base, he was able to steal both second and third. Um, though that looked like it had something to do with the pitcher. <laughs> that was, I was going to say, I there think was he's... discussion of that, that it was, it looked like, yeah, he, he stole it on the pitcher more than anything else. Um, well, you still have to be able to recognize that, though, right? Sure, and that's yeah. there's something there, too. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that at this point, we're not going to know much more about Corey Ray until we see him go through a full season next year. I mean, yes, we'll get little bits and pieces of stuff from the, from the Fall League. Yes, we'll probably get some, some more in-depth analysis of like what exactly is going on with his swing. And what people are seeing that could be problematic in that area or has been caused has caused issues. So we probably will get some of that over the winter. But really, to really change where we're at with Corey Ray, we're going to have to see if he can sink or swim next year 
putting up, you know, numbers. JP, how often does performance in the AFL even like change the perception of a player? Like if Corey Ray did go out to Arizona and just killed it out there, would yeah. that, you know, completely change the way people are looking at him? Or would it just be kind of like, here's a nice little stretch to, you know, maybe give some people some hope going into the next season? Uh, so I have two answers for this. Number one, amongst like baseball prospectus fan graphs, online scouting communities, the AFL matters a ton because this is a place in which people actually go and see the prospects a lot. So if they perform well, they'll start to skyrocket on lists. Um, it is something that I, th I think that, uh, AFL performance is overvalued and it's largely because these are the people that a lot of you know, if you if you're not a professional scout and you don't have a lot of money, it makes sense to go down to the AFL because you get to see a lot of prospects and it's just better bang for your buck. So you see a lot of people going down to see games that don't normally go see a lot of games or they can see a lot of big name players at once. And so if you can put on a good performance, you're going to be able to increase your stock, just like spring training, anything like that. But in organizations, it's it's kind of split. I mean, in some organizations, the AFL is just an opportunity to get more work. Uh, if it, for like Hauser, for example, he just needed more innings. Um, it's an opportunity to continue in a, in a competitive area that or like a competitive arena that's higher than, ex, than, uh, than, than it instructs. But what, it, what is the level? Like, what would it be comparable to if you, you know, High A, double A, triple A. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the year, but it's normally they suggest it's it's about triple A. Well, if you look at where the players are drawn from, it tends to be high A and double A. Guys, once right, they've but, once sure, they but it's a limited, it's AAA, a limited group, they, though. Sure, once and, they've played in triple A, they generally don't go to the AFL. That's I, I was just asking about what the, the level of competition is comparable to. Oh, 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 okay. Right, but just because the the a lot of the players who go there end up to, they're double A players or they're single A players, but they tend to be higher prospects. So, I mean, I've I've heard kind of different things depending on who you talk to. I mean, it's a subjective thing. But well, and it's a different thing too between hitting and pitching. Hitting prospects go to the AFL. I mean, that's hitting prospects tend to go, and pitching prospects the best ones sometimes go as JP was talking about guys who needed innings guys who didn't get their their work in but you often don't see a lot of the best pitchers like if just looking at the Brewers contingent they definitely sent better hitters than they sent pitchers sure yeah Monty Harrison's played in eight games uh he's slashing 258 303 613 so he's got eight home runs in 31 at bats um he's also struck or out 11 or, times. or three homers three home runs did I say 31 <laughs> <laughs> I said eight, but solid. Okay. He, he that has would be awesome. Three home runs in eight games. So, uh, what was the beer you got? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, turtle. Yeah, sack. he's yeah exactly. Um, yeah, so he's hitting with some power. He's also striking out quite a bit. But I, I mean, those numbers aren't like crazy different, you know, especially small sample size wise right. from what you had been doing. Yeah, and ultimately you see a lot of organizations actually do really like the Fall League, and it kind of depends on the emphasis they put on it as an organization. Um, where you'll see a lot of guys, like Mauricio Dubon is somebody that uh, performed well in the AFL and somebody the Brewers liked, and he was one of the guys in in uh, the Tyler Thornburg deal. Um, 
I mean, you'll see that a lot where you'll, you'll, you'll be able to see kind of which scouts uh, kind of liked certain players, uh, which scouts work the area and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do mid, they'll do off season uh, trade analysis pieces, whether it's beat writers, whether it's baseball America or whatever. And they'll talk to the farm, the uh, farm directors or the scouting directors in general. And you'll see people actually say, we saw him in the fall league and we loved him. And you'll see that, but there are other organizations that don't actually put a whole lot of stock into the fall league just because guys are tired. Uh, You'll see, you know, like, like Ryan was talking about, sometimes the pitchers there aren't that great. And sometimes it's not a great, it's not a great environment to pitch in in general and down in Arizona. So that's not something that is conducive to being able to, to scout pitchers all that well. So you'll, you'll see a lot of things. I mean, this is where Jacob Barnes really started to, to kind of blow up a little bit. It's where online prospect community started to be able to see a guy who was throwing mid nineties and had a, had a hard slider. And suddenly you started to see guys saying he's a mid rotate or a um, middle inning bullpen guy, maybe a late inning bullpen guy. So you'll see some guys that just all of a sudden explode, but that's just because, you know, this is a place where hundred scouts or a hundred scouts or whatever it is, like end up getting in one spot and look at them and they all talk about the players together. So you'll see some kind of group thing kind of come out of these. I was gonna say, it seems to be like a hive mind weird sort of thing where. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily track to performance, which the Corey Ray thing, there were a lot of positive things written this week about Corey Ray. And there have been positive things said about him. If you're following the prospect stuff, you saw it, you heard it. And it doesn't necessarily track with the performance of what he's doing. But people are seeing him are liking what they see, at least, that enough that they're not, you know, wanting to write him off as a prospect at this point. Hey, so Lucas Ersig, he's also down there. And he's uh, after a bit of a rough season uh, this year. Slow start. Slow start. Solid end. He got it back on track. Um, he's slashing 324, 342, 541 um, in 10 games. He's got 37 at-bats, so uh, he's hit three doubles in that time. Um, does this kind of help him going forward, you know, after getting a slow start and people kind of questioning who he was? I mean, does, Ryan, does it make you more excited to see Lucas Ersig in 2018? No, but I was excited already. I, I'm not normal. Uh, the, Ersig's one of my guys. I was so, going to say, like, I'm kind of setting you up on that one because yeah. you do like her sig. I was going to say, also, if we could quote that, it did say, I'm not normal <laughs> in the middle of that. So. We're going to start doing drops like I'm do not, on, I'm not doing drops. <laughs> I was say, which, you know, we know. Ryan says stuff like that on his own all the time. I don't need to, like, manufacture <laughs> drops. So, anyway, Ersig, uh, absolutely love him anyway. Uh, people have been blown away by his arm strength this fall. Like I've heard that seen that written a couple times. Well, but arm strength's always been one of his things. But yeah, anyways, go on. But no, people, I mean people also liked Matt Gamble's arm strength. Did they? Yeah. Man, I don't even remember that. I thought he had a huge arm. He just, you know, couldn't actually sort his feet out to throw it on anywhere. Which is not such an issue for Ursig. He he No, I he, no, no, I'm not making yeah. that I'm just give, giving you shit. That's all. Yeah. No, his yeah. So Ursig, um it is very, very nice to see like what he's doing now to be able to build on that second half of the season. And it's nice, at least from a superficial standpoint, where people looking at it can go, oh, he had kind of a blah season. If you weren't following it, you know, month by month, week by week, 
you maybe didn't realize that he had a big uptick at the second half of the season. And now seeing this in the AFL, you get this then, you know, it has to be good for him. It has to, you know, be a positive for his confidence and all of that, which ultimately how much that means. Probably not much, but whatever. It's still nice. Hey, JP, nice he's he's hitting, but he he sure doesn't draw walks or anything. Anything mm. to draw from that? No, but that's kind of been who, you know, as Dennis Green says, he is who he thought he was, right? I mean, he's a guy who's going to hit for a pretty good average. He doesn't necessarily walk a lot, but that's that doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't understand the zone. He just tends to be pretty aggressive on, on, on pitches he likes. Um, but, I mean, at the same time, He's still striking out 10 times in 10 games, right? So it's it's kind of a it's it's what we know. It, like he's got a good swing, he'll hit the ball hard. He's got a good idea what he's doing, but he's aggressive. And, you know, it you take what you can get from that. Yeah, I mean the overall package, even if a guy doesn't this is sort of a, a thing of modern baseball analysis where guys who don't walk much automatically get kind of crapped on. Like, and it's if you have a high average and if you're hitting for power and if you do other things well, if you play at a position that, you know, requires good defense and you play it well, you know, walks would be a nice addition. It's also something that tends to come with experience. Guys tend to pick those things up as they get, as they move into their, you know, late twenties. It's, there's a reason that, you know, those were coined old man skills. Oh yeah. I mean, I always pick that up. I I I think of the crew that came in for the brewers, you know, starting in 05, 06 with Hardy and Fielder and Weeks. And Corey Hart was probably the prime example of that as a guy who developed that old man skill because he went... Hardy too. Uh, yeah. Hardy as well, but Hardy, you know, obviously didn't stay with the team quite as long. But Corey Hart was an example of a guy who, you know, he had a little bit trouble uh, drawing walks early on. He kind of showed... He showed some... Uh, he had a handle on the zone, but it was later... It was, he had he had some plate discipline issues. He was he remember did. that year well, and a half where you could he went through that time where throw a slider, yeah if you threw a slider away. he wasn't doing anything with yeah. it and then all of a sudden he figured it out and he became a thirty home run a year guy. Yes, but anyways, that, I was using him as an example of a guy that he did figure out kind of that that um, he developed those those skills to draw walks. Um, but anyways, uh, Jason Spitz he wants to know uh, our thoughts on Lucic. Lucas Ersig being blocked at third uh, by 2017 team MVP Travis Shaw. Uh, Shaw's under team control through 2021. So what does this do for Ersig as he moves his way through the system? Is he just going to get stalled out for a while? I I don't think it's an issue whatsoever. I don't really believe in blocked prospects in general. Um, But, I mean, he's at minimum a year and a half away from even knocking on the door. I would think so. Unless he's, unless he just takes a massive leap forward, but that's yeah. If he takes a massive leap forward, but he didn't year then. Yeah. And he still didn't even put together, you know, a phenomenal 2017 in which we're talking about somebody that's going to project to just light up double a next year. I, I still think it shows how much the organization likes him that they were willing to put him up in AAA for the the Pacific Coast League playoffs for Colorado Springs. The fact that they're sending him to the AFL and they're playing him so much in spring, they like him a lot. They like his makeup. They like his kind of the overall hitting package in general. They like the fact that he can pick it at third. Um, I don't necessarily know what I think about his his ceiling, I, 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 maybe I haven't thought about it all that much, but 
I he has the same feel that Orlando Arcia had in terms of what the organization uh, does with him in spring training and promoting him to different leagues. And it's been really interesting to watch because I think that you can tell a lot of a lot of what organizations feel like guys can handle. I mean, it's the same thing about Mario Feliciano and the fact that he was all of a sudden being dropped in as a catcher, a raw catcher in full season ball at 18 years old. They just a felt young that 18 could, too. Yeah. And they were like, he can handle it. Um, yeah. And for the large part of the season, he was able to do it. And Lucas Ersig is somebody that they feel comfortable putting on the biggest stage in, in spring training and making him play and allowing him to play with, uh, with big league players. And, you know, sometimes you see with Orlando Arcia, there were big league brewers at the time when he was coming in and he was a teenager being, you know, working out with the, with the big league squad in spring training. And they said he, he belonged like he, he was somebody who was a believed in himself enough to be there, but everybody else treated him like he was part of it because they saw, what they liked uh, or, and they saw what, you know, what he could be. And I'll be interested to see who they really aggressively play in spring training again in 2018 a lot. I think that Ersig's going to get a lot of time and I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, Mauricio Dubon gets a lot of time early in spring. Okay. Yeah. You're talking about the guy who comes in like in the third inning of those early games when the starters are getting like two at bats and then they're done. I mean, Lucas Ersig started like every other game for a week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you, do you see Ersig is a high floor guy since he's, you know, generally thought of pretty well as a defensive third baseman? Um, I don't know. I still think he's got hit tool questions. I still am not 100% sure that he's going to be somebody that is no question going to be able to hit upper upper tier stuff. Um. And that's we're going to start getting a look at that. Lefties. Yeah, we're going to start so, getting a look at that this year with double yeah. A. He'll be. I'm assuming he'll go to double A to start the year, and it's that's that's when you really start to see that. So, yeah, I mean, I it's guys like you know Dubon that I think have have high floors just because even if he can't really hit, he's got a path to be a utility infielder. Is um, it just is it just the fact that a, a defensive third baseman still doesn't have that high a floor as compared to guys playing up the middle? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you can't play anything but third base, even if you're really good at third base, you've still got to be able to hit. If you can't hit, you don't have a path. I mean, the only reason that Aaron Perez is still, even though he's played third base relatively well, the vast majority of his defensive value this past year, it was kind of sneaky in terms of everyone points at his defensive value, but most of that came in left field. And it's not like you're going to carry Aaron Perez to be a defensive specialist in left field and still not be able to hit very well. So, I mean, the fact that he's got the versatility to be able to play a lot of, a lot of places is one of the reasons because, and I bring up him because if you're looking at somebody who needs to hit for average because he doesn't walk very much, but can hit, hit for some power. I mean, Perez is that kind of guy and it shows that Ersig's going to have to be able to hit for average. And he's going to be able to have to hit for in-game power because that kind of profile doesn't necessarily work. If the average isn't high enough. Ryan, do you have any final thoughts on Ersig? Um, yeah, I mean, he is a guy. We're gonna this year is gonna be very important when he makes the jump to Double A. Um, it is 
interesting. There were some some reports earlier this year. So there, JP brought up earlier that there were some makeup questions with Ursig coming out of college because he flunked out of Cal and had to go to a, a Co- junior college. Coming out of his first year of college, right? Yeah, I think he flunked out in the middle of his second year. I think it was during the second year that he he had to go and then he transferred it because I think he just played one okay. year at Menlo Park. Point being, it, it was where he initially went once he transferred, the issues kind of settled down. So there were, some, there were some questions about that and people that saw him this year, I read multiple reports from people who saw him this year where they praised his makeup extremely, just the way he is on the field and the way he is a natural leader and the way he comports himself and those sorts of things, that he was that, he's that sort of a guy that has high on the field baseball makeup that way it's Um, i mean i i do want to be careful with these sorts of things because i i don't like talking about makeup issues um because i don't think they're fair since we don't necessarily know a lot of a lot of the story and i know we're just going off reports and that and that's and that's fine but it's also worth saying it's not just baseball makeup because i mean and even to get back on the field at menlo when he transferred there, he had to take overload for about, I think he had to take an overload in the summer and then had to take an overload in the fall to even get to the point that he could play. And he was able to not only academically get on track, but still be able to to handle all of his athletic business. He was able to get good grades. He, the coach at Menlo says nothing but great things about him in terms of the way that he was able to learn from the mistakes that were made before. So it's not just, you know, we're separating scholastic issues and saying, but he's great on the baseball field. I mean, everybody screws up when you're 18 years old, right? Sometimes there's various degrees for how much you screw up. I was very and mature. I've, <laughs> I've heard stories about how mature. And I think that it's also I have worth, more if you want them. <laughs> it's also worth noting when guys like Ursig come up and say, I needed to grow up quickly. And I, and I did. And I and I committed myself not only to baseball, but I committed myself to be able to do what I needed to do in the classroom. And I think that I think that's the part that needs to be focused on far more than the issues that were at Cal. No, that is significant. If you can identify an issue and make adjustments and say, okay, I need to work on myself in some way. Like you have to give somebody a lot of credit for doing that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we do have a, a Twitter question, uh, wondering about what the Brewers excel in at, in their minor league system. Do they excel in scouting development, just depth? Um, and then, uh, what needs improvement as far as, uh, the Brewers minor league system and how they, uh, do player development? Well, I would say, obviously, if we're talking about like a, a whole system overview, the depth is what stands out about this because that's what has been their calling card now for a couple of years. So if we're talking about a, a large system overview, if we're talking about more sort of targeted ideas, I think one of the things that's been underrated is that they've done a pretty good job of keeping their pitchers healthy and developing them, bringing, however, whatever it is they're doing to bring pitchers along has been largely successful. They've, yes, they've had their, their share of Tommy John guys, but honestly, a lot of the guys that have had Tommy John surgery for them in recent years have come over from other systems. So you have somebody like Adrian Hauser who came over from another system and had Tommy John surgery. Um, i trying to think off the top of my head. Taylor Williams was the first guy who was like drafted and developed by the Brewers to have Tommy I mean, John surgery in a long time. I mean, Nathan Kirby 
also Tommy John surgery. But I think one of the things that you got to that was a case that, of he came, he was, he was damaged goods when they got him pretty he much. Had a lat, he had a lat issue. He didn't have an elbow issue. Well, but he barely threw here before and maybe, you know. But the, but the organization still made the call that they wanted to do that. I mean, you can say that it's not their fault. Oh, but, sure. From a development standpoint, they don't seem to have that issue. From a drafting standpoint, that's a, yeah, risking, risk I, I think I'd be careful with that just because there are plenty of people that the Brewers either sign internationally or draft that have Tommy John surgery. They just don't actually allocate a lot of resources to pitching high in drafts. So there are not a lot sure. of pitchers that we actually pay attention to. Uh, or value very highly that end up getting Tommy John surgery. But there are easily four or five pitchers a year that the Brewers draft or develop that get Tommy John surgery every year. Hey, JP, have we had enough time to evaluate the system under David Stearns versus Doug Melvin? Like, has there been any major philosophical changes that we can see in the, what's it been, two years? Well, and they made a change of farm director after last season so this was the first year under the the new farm director i mean there have been changes but i remember like keith law had an issue where he didn't think stern's made enough changes so uh, jp do you have any uh thoughts on maybe how it's changed or if it's changed that much uh since the regime change uh so i think brewers fans should be thankful that they have ray montgomery in the front office for as long as that um, lasts. Yeah, he, I don't think it's going to be too long. I yeah. think he's going to get poached to go higher. Well, there were some uh, thoughts that he already would have gotten poached by now. But yes, yeah, anyways. absolutely. Absolutely. And there were t- there was talk that he was maybe going to be an option for GM instead of David Stearns. And, Which was totally legitimate. I don't think anybody yeah. would have complained about that here. No, absolutely. I mean, ev- all the scouts in the Brewers organization love working for Ray Montgomery. Ray Montgomery has a wonderful reputation throughout the entire league. Uh, in terms of things that have changed, I mean, there have been some, I don't even remember what the podcast was. I Maybe it was something with BP. Um, well, they only have like 20 podcasts, so. Yeah, I, I can't keep track of them. But it was probably, oh no, it was an old XM, serious XM uh talk with with mike farron yep i heard and, this too. Yeah. and it's just there was a lot of talk about the the brewers not necessarily doing a great job communicating between levels and and communicating between maryville and, and everywhere else to get everybody on the same page and so they were able to streamline communications be able to standardize what they wanted to be able to do they had more coaches at lower levels to be able to um target players and coach them up. And one of the things that I actually have noticed, and perhaps it's because more people have been paying attention to the Brewers farm system. So there have been more articles written, but whether it's Corbin Burns or whether it's, you know, I mean, you can almost take your pick at this point, but it's so many pitchers say the Brewers helped me change X and it's been great for me. Um, and it's not just, you know, Derek Johnson, it's people at Maryville during the spring or pitching coordinators. And I, I pick Corbin Burns just because people are going to be able to pay attention to his up, upswing so much. But I think that what they have been able to do is they're actually allocating many more, um, 
so many more resources in coaching at the lower levels in this in at Maryvale in spring training and they're not just saying which they did a while ago everybody kind of figure out figure out everything on your own right like figure out your your training figure out your weightlifting on your own i mean i remember jed bradley saying that he like his entire first year was trying to figure out how to lift when he pitched every 5 days because he was lifting too much and then he was exhausted and he just didn't have anybody even to help him in the organization figure out how to do that. So this is a change from Melvin and his top down versus Stearns and now with Montgomery as well. It was I mean, it's it started a little bit before, right? I mean, it's not so much Melvin I was gonna and Stearns. Say, I was gonna say there there were some there was a shift between Melvin and Stearns where they brought in Montgomery and stuff started. Well, Montgomery, to that. But Montgomery, yeah, Montgomery was there before Stearns. That that's right? what I'm saying. There there yeah. was there was a gradual change as opposed to Melvin had his guys and then Stearns came in and then he had his guys. Right. There was quite a bit of crossover between the two. And let's be clear, but, their current farm director is a guy who's been with the organization for like almost 20 years, 15 years. Yeah, Todd Johnson. And I mean, I don't know. Did you have something else you wanted no, to no, say? No, no, no. Tom farm? Flanagan is the farm director. Todd Johnson's that's the scouting director. Yeah. That's well, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> the point is that they've been around and both of those guys have been around for a long time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So they've, and that's been something that Stearns has maybe surprisingly, he stuck with a lot of the things that, that Melvin was doing, or he promoted people, kept people around. Gordash is still in the organization. He's in a different role and he's doing, you know, different things, but somebody's got to scout Canada. <laughs> Who was the last Canadian we've taken? It's been a while. I don't know. I think after the Brett Lowry fi fiasco, they've kind of uh, eased <laughs> off their Canadians. <laughs> well, they took Demi, and he was from he was from yeah, Canada. Demi. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they had uh, they had Dustin Hula, and he was he was a Canadian catcher. Um, but when did he? Was that fifteen? No, that was a while ago. He was out for a few years with injury. I think he actually came in the same time Brett Brett Lowry did. Oh, um, but. Yeah, I yeah, I think in order to actually answer the question uh, instead of just talking out of my ass for a while, um, I think that one of the things that they do particularly well, I, Ray Montgomery has not had a bad draft, and their their amateur scouting. I think their big league scouting is actually quite good too. Their their minor league scouting is good. I think that they've been able to hit on. Aside from maybe Jacob Nottingham, I think they've actually been able to hit on the vast majority of their trades in which they go and get prospects. And you're not going to hit on every one. That's no, not you can't. A, that's not a fair standard, too. Like, no, you can't. You, you basically, if you're pulling a guy here and there, that's good. They're hitting on a, a much higher percentage than you'd ever expect. Right. But I think that the Brewers, every single draft since Ray Montgomery has taken charge, they have not played... They've had great drafts without uh, trying to play monetary games to, you know, in the same way that maybe the Phillies would do or the Braves would do, in which they take somebody super low to be able to save money and then move it around. I mean, they well, did that with Medeiros, but uh, but that wasn't Montgomery, right? So Montgomery's no, first was year was after that year. And ever since then, they've pretty much just drafted the best player available and they've been able to make the money work because they do their work beforehand. They know what they can afford. They know what players they want, and they lock it down. 
Well, they've drafted seniors, college seniors that they liked. Granted, college seniors they've liked. They start getting those guys for low bonuses in the 8th, ninth, 10th, and 10th rounds. So they have done that in the last couple of years. I know that the guy well, out of Utah in the 8th round this year. Yes. So they've done some of that. I mean, they're not purely not they're not purely uh taking the best player available. They are doing no. a little bit of the gamesmanship, but they're spending every every penny um, yeah. that they can. I mean, it was this year how ridiculous was that it was like they were at 4. Point, or was it 2 years ago? They were at like 4.999% over and if you hit 5, that's when you start incurring the penalties. So they right. literally they had like it was like they had a couple hundred dollars or something that they could have spent more than what they did. It's like they got a bunch of uh, Ivy League number crunchers uh, <laughs> working for this team. You're going to make people mad. People people don't like Ivy League number crunchers. Hey, it's, a, it's become a, a they, point of contention. They should be thrilled with their budget management. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I think I mean, the way that it works for in, it, for draft purposes like this, though, that's it's a very strict system. You're not allowed to spend exorbitant amounts of money so it's important that you allocate and that you plan so that you can get the best combination of prospects that you can afford because the way it works with MLB there are a bunch of guys out there and the Brewers did this two years ago in their draft where they took a bunch of guys in the 20s I think it was who they never really had any hope of signing these were guys that were would have been top 100 200 players that were had solid commitments to college and were not signing under basically any circumstances. Um, and they did that in the twenties where it really didn't matter. You know, they were, they were taking, it would have been a nobody that they would have been taking if they had drafted somebody at that point. So, um, you know, they have been, they have been very, very good about making sure that they can get, and this year what they did with their, in their strategy in the teens was, they took a bunch of guys that they were going to make a big offer to, and they ended up signing... Um, Javon Ward. Javon Ward, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they also signed Max Lazar for over the, the oh, yeah. 100K. They signed uh, Castillo for uh, over 100K. They signed, like, two or three more people that were high schoolers that they were able to sign over the 100K mark, or at least right at the 100k mark i mean the guys that were in top or the top 500 top 400 of, of baseball america they were able to base it and and it helps i mean it doesn't it's not great i don't like the 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 draft cap system but in order for the brewers to be able to go to somebody and say look we've got two hundred thousand dollars that we can give you and we can't go above that do you want it yes or no and that makes negotiations very uh cut and dry yes. and so it makes it easier for people that just are like, well, I, they only have this much money. Do I want to play? Do I want to go to college and honor my commitment or do I want to go pro? And I understand all of the the baggage that comes along with that and saying that it undercuts what they would make on the free market. It depresses uh, amateur, amateur contracts up fully. Yes. But uh, you know, things can be good for teams in multiple ways uh, and they can be good for players in multiple ways in terms of easing negotiations and knowing what a team can give you. Um, you know, things are complicated. But I think that if you look at every single draft since Montgomery has come aboard, uh, not only has it been one of the best drafts coming through in terms of, you know, draft grades or or scouting uh, scouting circles liking it, but... I mean, you've still got players down in the third, in the fourth round that are still producing. 
that they're going to get good players down there. Corbin Burns. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, he's the biggest one for it, but so like, far, even yeah. if, but even if you look at the second round, um, like every single year that they've, they've gotten Feliciano in the competitive round B they've gotten Cody Ponce, who is kind of, you know, people have been a little bit concerned about him, but he still has a potential rotation future. Tristan. Lutz. Well, he was a competitive. He was a, uh, Oh, competitive, competitive round, round a. a. Yeah. Okay. But point taken. So, okay. At this point, um, I did an interview with Jonathan judge. We talked a little bit about DRA. It came up, uh, the previous week when we were talking about chase Anderson, uh, so, uh, stick around for that. I, I will spoil, uh, an interesting thing that he was talking about when we were comparing Anderson's ERA to his DRA, Jonathan pointed out that, uh, runs average per nine is actually a better measure. So instead of looking at ERA, which, you know, obviously factors out, uh, errors and garbage like that, just look at total runs. And obviously that'll bring up his runs allowed, uh, per game average and then it looks a little bit more comparable to what dra is so i think part of it is we were using the wrong baseline as far as what dra is versus era does that make sense yeah i but the whole point is trying to judge whether what his era is going to be going for oh yeah exactly but i'm just saying we were using we were comparing it to the wrong statistic we were comparing dra to the wrong statistic correct yeah. So that makes a difference. Um, right. It, but it, he, he said that uh, Anderson's still a guy that is an outlier as far as the runs he allows versus what his DRA is. And then we also talked a bit about Josh Hader. That's another guy he had some interesting thoughts on. So uh, stick around for that uh, interview with Jonathan Judge. Yeah, get to hear some smart people talk. It'll be good. Joining me now is Jonathan Judge. He's a co-creator of DRA and a writer at Baseball Prospectus. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing? Good, Steve. How are you? Good. Uh, so a week or two ago, we were talking about uh, Chase Anderson's uh, new contract with the Brewers, and we we're looking up some of his stats, and we noticed uh-huh. that Chase Anderson is a guy that has traditionally outpitched his DRA. As a co-creator of DRA, uh, I guess if you want to give us first a little bit of background on it, and then uh, maybe we can get into some reasons why something like that happens, especially with the new statistic. Sure. So I think where you where you start with these statistics is there are sort of what I would call more descriptive um, estimators. Well, let's let's start with the beginning. So the first thing is that obviously pitchers tend to be charged with responsibility for certain runs being allowed. So. The, the good old formula of, you know, you were pitching at this time or you got let the runners get on base and they scored uh, within that inning. Therefore, we're going to charge them to you. That is sort of the purest, um, you know, runs allowed uh, metric you could have. And then the next step up from that is people start to say, well, that's kind of messy. How can I do a better job of figuring out what you were probably more likely actually responsible for? And so that's where we get things like FIP, fielding independent pitching, where you sort of pretend that balls in play don't matter or they all cancel out, and you only focus on certain things. And, for example, with FIP, it's home runs, um, walks, uh, hit, by, hit by pitch, um, in some variants, not others. That's not a big deal if you include those or not. And then uh, do, 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 strikeouts. And the, but, but FIP is still 
it's two things. Number one, it, it is definitely what I would call a, a an ERA estimator. And so all of these sort of alternative, you know, RA estimators are just that. They're trying to estimate what we think the pitcher's ability really was or how well they really pitched. And But FIP is still almost purely a descriptive estimator. This is something that's really widely misunderstood. People... Uh, you can see it all the time. People use FIP and they say, oh, well, but you can look at his FIP and you can see how well he really pitched. Or you can you can tell that he's going to do better in the second half, most likely. Well, and, and that's and now isn't, not true at all. <laughs> yeah. And now isn't FIP one that uh, in a lot of cases you look at guys with like high strikeout rates and they generally had better FIPs? They do. So because um, that strikeouts are valuable and you can rack up a lot of them and they can have a big effect. But FIPs, the problem with FIP and uh, and I say problem, I mean, it, it does a reasonable job of estimating what your, you know, how well you probably pitched in the sense of what your results were, uh, if not your process, because it simply relies upon the most valuable and common events in baseball, which are home runs, which are overwhelmingly the most valuable events, and then strikeouts and then walks, which, you know, take up a lot of various events and are also pretty valuable. So, you know, basically, if you can keep your home runs down for whatever reason um, and strike guys out, you can have a decent FIP, and that's fine. And and, and that's fine, you know. I mean, if, if that's sort of given you a slightly better idea of how someone pitched, which it probably does, um, than just raw ERA or, or RA9, which is the sort of take out the earned part and just kind of credit people for all runs that happened on their watch, which over the course of a season is a more uh, reliable thing to do. Um, then you kind of go beyond that though. And you start asking questions like, well, you know, simply taking all home runs at face value, very few people think that's a good idea. Um, Russell Carlton has a phrase that I guess he took from someone else, which is what all baseball people do, but it was something like the pitcher allows the fly ball and the park allows the home run. Um, so home runs tend to be very volatile. Um, and the fact is also that while strikeouts and walks are definitely, things that pitchers are responsible for balls in play are also something that they're responsible for. Um, so-called batting average and balls in play. Uh, you know, you, you can affect those things. You can affect whether the contact is hard or not. You can affect whether people are scalding signal singles or weekly grounding out to second. So at least to some extent. So when you start climbing into those things, then you say, okay, well, those are definitely noisy. How can I incorporate those? And yet, do something other than basically saying, here's what happened, you're stuck. And so what some more advanced estimators do, like uh, Sierra um, and DRA, is they start saying, okay, we're going to start making adjustments. We're not just going to merely take certain events and total those up. We're actually going to make adjustments. We're going to say that no matter how many of these things you gave up, in fact, you only deserve to give up this many. Um, and so you start making adjustments to that and then you retotal it up and that's how you end up with what I would really call a true, um, pitcher run estimator. And that's, and DRA is sort of deserved run average, I would say is the most aggressive, um, public attempt to do that and really try to say what, what most likely was the pitcher's contribution to the runs allowed, as opposed to simply saying, you know, what happened or what what is the subset of what happened that I happen to be interested in? 
So uh, I guess for DRA, when people are looking at it, and you know, people like to do it for FIP as well, they like to say, okay, well, this pitcher is going to regress because of his FIP, or he's going to get on a hot streak because you know he's out pitching, or he he's under pitching his FIP or DRA. Right now, how well does that work for DRA, or is that just kind of a complete uh, misapplication of any of these statistics? It, it works better for DRA than it does for FIP, certainly. FIP is very descriptive in that it does a pretty good job of telling you what's already happened and strips out a little bit of noise. Um, it does a little bit better of a job than ERA does of predicting the future in terms of anticipating, say, a second half of the season. But it doesn't do a particularly good job. And so I, I think anybody who's actually using FIP for that reason is probably misusing it or is certainly setting themselves up for some disappointment. Um, DRA does a much better job of that. Uh, it is actually because it is uh, making adjustments for things like context, like parks, like opponent, um, things like that. And because it tends to sort of dole out credit more gradually, um, DRA definitely does a better job of anticipating both future runs allowed. And um, it also remains more stable from the first half of the season to the second. So, so I would say they can both do it. Um, neither one is going to probably predict it as well as anybody would like, uh, baseball being what it is. But DRA definitely does a better job of, quote unquote, predicting the future than FIP does. And I, I, I wouldn't say it's particularly close. Okay. So like I said, this came up uh, initially between uh, JP, Ryan, and myself because we were looking at Chase Anderson's contract and kind of looking what he's done in the past. And you know, he had a big leap forward this year as far as run prevention is concerned. But if you look at it, his uh, DRA in relation to his ERA, it kind of stayed the same uh, from the previous three seasons to this year where he was, uh, I guess, a four-run pitcher um, for DRA as opposed to the 275 ERA he had. So I, I guess why would someone like that um, consistently outpitch their DRA? Do you have a, uh, any theories on that? Or I guess, like, why would that happen? Well, I would say there are two things um, that I would point out. One is that DRA is actually indexed to um, RA9 rather than ERA. So be careful with the ERA comparison because it's always going to be about a half run lower than the actual target. So I'd say his RA9, I don't know if I have it in front of me, but I assume if his ERA is about 275, his RA9 is probably, oh, I don't know, uh, 3.25, something like that. So that's always the first thing. I, I, I kind of correct myself mentally that we've chosen a better benchmark, and so the gaps sometimes are not as big as they appear. Um, that said, that still does leave a bit of a gap. Um, and I, I guess it it is somewhat hard to say with any particular pitcher. I will say that in general, he doesn't strike out as many guys as say, uh, you know, other pitchers do and strikeouts DRA tends to reward strikeouts more than anything else because it is such a stable indication of pitcher ability. And so, you know, he strikes out, he's certainly gotten better over the past couple of years and he had a very good season this year but I would say if I had to pick one thing that jumps out to me, it would be that um, the strikeout rate at eight and a half per nine, you know, that's certainly very solid for a starter. I think that if, you know, if that was closer to nine or nine and a half, 
uh, I think his DRA and certainly his RA9 would be a lot more uh, closer in alignment. Okay. Um, so uh, how does, like, I guess, for example, uh, Anderson's a guy who he had some pop-up uh, velocity this year. He mm-hmm. kind of added a, a pitch to his repertoire. I mean, is there any way to kind of factor that stuff in um, as opposed to just looking at numbers? I mean, does it use, uh, what am I looking for, pitch effects data? Is it looking at kind of like what he throws, maybe the kind of break he's throwing on stuff, like the difficulty of hitting some of these pitches? Or is it purely, you know, bad on the ball or swings and misses that it's kind of looking at to come up with a number? You know, actually, I would say it is looking at that stuff. That's something that we added this year. Um, it actually looks specifically at the pitches he's throwing. It looks at whether each pitch is a changeup, whether it's a fastball, whether it's a sinker, whether it's a curveball. Um, and that does, that has gotten us a lot more accuracy. Um, I think there is a little bit of a lingering issue, though, there. Not that it's an issue. I mean, it's still an improvement, but it's certainly possible that he's sequencing pitches in a way that doesn't that is actually incredibly effective but just isn't very customary or typical uh so i mean we are taking into account those things um but you know it's it's entirely possible that he has just kind of found a way to make his stuff work uh in a way that we don't fully appreciate yet uh which is fine uh that's kind of the exciting part of this and uh you know, again, I mean, a DRA of four is, you know, sort of about 15% above average, which when you consider on top of that, that he's a starter is, I mean, that that's good. He's, he's a good pitcher. And, uh, you know, it's possible that there could be, uh, you know, a little room in there uh, to get a little more accuracy with him. But, you know, he's, you know, he pitched really well this year. And, you know, the, the sort of improvements that he made are the ones that you usually would expect to stick around for a while. So he's... I expect that to the extent that, you know, we find more and more ability to figure out what he's doing right, um, that he's going to continue to do well. Yeah. I mean, like I said, we were kind of comparing it to ERA. And like you said, it was runs runs uh, per nine is a better measure. So clearly, like our, our baseline, I think, for looking at the number was off. And that does make a big difference. There, um, there is something also about him that's, that I haven't looked into, but I find it sort of interesting, is that his pitcher park factor under our sort of, you know, we, we call it PPF, our standard thing, is actually below average this year, which for Miller Park is a little interesting. So, I mean, another thing to look at for, you know, for the, the diehard Chase Anderson conspiracy theorist is they might want to go back and see where it was he ended up pitching on the road and such because, um, you know, we show him as having had a, you know, a rather favorable collection of parks to pitch in. And if that is... Uh, you know, that very well could be spilling over into things like home run prevention and other things in which people say, nice job where you were able to pitch. But, uh, you know, um, in a more average collection of parks, you might have given up a little bit more stuff. Yeah, so. I mean, he missed seven or eight starts with that hamstring injury. Um, so, yeah, it, it could have just shaken out that he got, what, a, a West Coast swing and he probably got some bigger parks maybe. And he was injured during some pretty hot, uh, some pretty hot weeks in the schedule. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's all... Again, I, I really think that I think one thing to, to keep in mind with these things is that it, it, the difference between three and a half and four is certainly a lot different than the difference between, say, two and a half and four or, you know, three and a half and five. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can certainly see some ways in which he would have, uh, you, you know, had to dig himself out of a bit of a hole as far as 
DRA was concerned, but I mean, overall he was a uh, pretty, uh, you know, got above average ratings and to do that as a starter is especially given the other peripherals he had is, uh, is pretty impressive. He was great to watch. Uh, what were you th- your thoughts when you saw the extension that the Brewers were able to sign him to? Um, Oh, I th- I was very happy. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was great. So he's, uh, you know, he's, he was fun to watch this year and it sounds like he was able to, to make a lot of improvements and, and reflect on, on what was going to work for him and what wasn't. And, pretty hard to deny that uh you know that the velocity was up and that he was mixing in some pitches and uh just just really looked like a different guy and so um happy they were able to extend him and happy obviously as everyone is that uh that you know he and his family can kind of uh check that box off in terms of you know having lasted long enough in the league to get some financial security and just kind of focus on pitching so i i was pretty happy with it um, now, Josh Hader was another guy that you mentioned that y- you thought was kind of interesting, uh, the split between his runs allowed and his DRA. Uh, what is it about Hader that, you know, kind of creates that split for him? Because, I mean, he's really a guy that you look at right now. He's pure stuff, but he's kind of all over the place. So so he had two issues, uh, really. And, you know, the first issue was that originally he was walking so damn many guys uh, where it was almost, it was just amazing to watch. Like, and this is, I guess, part of the the great part about being a strikeout pitcher is that you're sort of never really out of it um, and that you can have a bunch of walks, you can have some weak contact, and then you just shrug and say, well, I guess I have to strike these next three guys out. And you do. And, and there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of clapping and it's, pretty amazing to watch so i mean he started out when i think over his first 10 or 15 innings or so i mean the walk rate was was really something uh and then that kind of came down and so then the dra came down a little bit but then it kind of got stuck kind of around that four area and i think i mean i don't know if i would call it a bug but i think he actually did reveal sort of a a uh you know sort of a weakness in the way that it's calculated at the moment in that what we do is we sort of look at how many outs in play you're generating and we kind of do it by position. So we actually look at, you know, how many put outs to left field, how many put outs to center field, how many put outs to right field instead of just, you know, pure put outs. And, you know, the problem with someone like Josh Hader is that he is doing such a good job of keeping the ball out of play that he can sort of generate a below average expected number of outs merely by not generating enough balls in play. So I think one aspect that we're probably going to consider doing this year, this off season is to try and consolidate it a little bit. So, you know, we aren't really expecting people to disperse a certain number of, um, you know, hits or put outs or fly outs to various places, just sort of looking at the rate overall. And I actually was doing some experiments with that this morning and his DRA went down quite a bit into the twos. So I have a feeling that that is a, an indicator that we can a save a whole lot of time and B then make sure that sort of, uh, delightful, uh, you know, collections of um, pitchability like Josh Hader can kind of get a number that's closer to just the way that they happen to operate. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on Hader uh, next season as a starter versus a uh, reliever? Not really. Um, I, I think the, the thing that I kind of took away was just how amazing it was to see 
how he developed over the course of the season um, because at Colorado Springs, and I, I didn't watch any of his minor league appearances, but you'll notice, of course, that you know his numbers were challenging and it seemed like he was sort of a little frustrated in terms of how things were going. And, and yet he was brought up and they were pretty patient about what they wanted and uh, kind of took it step by step. And by the end of the season, he was a very confident, uh, you know, effective pitcher. So, I mean, he's one of those people that I think the right thing to do is to just say, you know, whatever it is that he thrives on, the club seems to know what that is. And uh, however they are comfortable in using him, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I've, I haven't seen a pitcher like that in Milwaukee in recent years. I'm never really quite sure what to think of it. Other than that, it's it's fun to watch. And I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Um, hey, any uh, thoughts on where DRA is going from here? Uh, the kind of refinements that you're looking to do um, in the offseason? Sure. So I think um, one area that we're interested in is we kind of got to the point where we felt like we were covering everything. And now I think one area of interest for me is in simplifying. I think that uh, makes it easier for people to understand. I think that also makes it quicker to run and gives you fewer opportunities for uh, Josh Hader related quirks. So that's something we're focused on. And and although it's it's kind of a tricky issue, I think there might be some interest in integrating some uh, some metrics from like uh, from MLB with related to we've already got you know pitch velocity things and pitch quality if. There were hit quality things that could get integrated also. That would be kind of nice. Uh, although um, ML BAM has some strong feelings about that. So I guess we'll have to see if that's uh, ultimately allowed or not. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Um, and you can follow Jonathan on Twitter at Bachlaw, B-A-C-H-L-A-W-0-1. Um, and then you can also check out some of his content on Baseball Prospectus. That's going to do it for this week's show. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can also leave reviews and help people find the podcast. Thanks for listening, and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Hey.